This is a podcast by The Straits Times. Hello and welcome to Bookmark This, a Straits Times podcast in which we talk about books in the headlines and recommend to you new reads. I'm To Wen Lee and I'm here today with my co-host, Olivia Ho. Hello. Today we're going to be talking about two new novels exploring existential ennui. I Want to Die But I Want to Eat Tokboki by Beg Sehi and Companion Piece by Ali Smith. Ennui seems a fitting topic as we bid farewell to Olivia before she leaves the Straits Times. She's going to be doing a PhD in literature. I'm sad to announce that this will be her last podcast episode. Well, I don't want you to feel ennui about <laughs> it. It's hard not to. But yeah, it's been a really, um, I mean, we started in 2018 and it's been such a such a ride since then. We've done, this is our 34th episode. Uh, I remember when we started, we were, we were we didn't even have the studio. We were recording in radio and uh, we had to sneak in and get people to unlock the doors for us. Yeah, we've had some some pretty good moments, I like to think. Yeah, and some memorable episodes as well. I think the first one we did was on Crazy Rich Asians. Oh yeah, because they told us, because we wanted to do like this, um, you know, a book podcast. We wanted to talk about books, but then they were like, you must appeal to commercial audiences. So we had this very <laughs> chapalang episode. It was Crazy Rich Asians, and then it was Jeremy Tiang, State of Emergency, and yes. Otessa Moshfeg. So it's kind of all over the place. And uh, I like to think that we've um, narrowed things down and um, become a, a better oiled more polished uh, product <laughs> since then. But, you know, every single episode has been such a joy to do. Yes. So, Olivia, what were some of the highlights for you? I think that uh, one of my favourite episodes that we did was the Top 50 Singlet with Soften. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that was um, really fantastic because we got to look back at all the, you know, the 50 go back through 50 books across Singapore's literary history. It was this deep dive. Uh, and at the same time, it was a crash course because we had to go through them so quickly. Um, I think that was very unique and enjoyable for me. I think the the book of roundups every year, they were so <laughs> wild because we would, we would make ourselves read six books. Six books, and yeah. And actually, that was very feat. crazy when we think about it. And we did that for many years in a row. Yeah, there was one year where Anna Burns Milkman won the book. That was such yeah. a happy moment because I really no, enjoyed the book. Yeah, because you really liked it. And then there was one year where um, we thought uh, Lucy Ellman's thousand-page novel, New Report, Duck's win. New Report, was going to win it. And it did not. And it went to Margaret Atwood and Bernadette Evaristo. And I always, and I kept saying that Margaret Atwood couldn't possibly win because she was so, you know, such a big name and overhyped. And, uh, and But she did win. And, you know, that was, I think we were all very surprised. Indeed. So let's get on with the episode proper. First up, we have the best-selling Korean therapy memoir, I Want to Die, But I Want to Eat Tteokbokki by Big Sehi. So I keep hearing about this book. It's been everywhere. Mm-hmm. And um, why is it such a big deal? Well, it's, no, it's really honest. It's a really candid look at a young woman's struggles with persistent depressive disorder. And I think it also comes at a time when society has started to take mental health a lot more seriously. And I think it's a great book because it shows that you don't need to be on the precipice of a mental breakdown for your needs to be taken seriously. There are many people who aren't wallowing in the pits of existential despair, but who aren't exactly happy either. And perhaps what they feel is a dull kind of sadness. You know what um, American writer Thoreau said about um, men leading lives of quiet desperation. Um, so there's something there. And I think Bake's book is proof that um, these people are not alone, far from it. And just because your issues seem relatively minor doesn't mean you shouldn't talk about them or try to seek help or go for therapy. So Big um, is South Korean. She was working as a marketing professional in South Korea 
uh, when she was diagnosed with dystemia, also known as persistent depressive disorder. And the book is a record of her conversations with a psychiatrist during a 12-week period. Um, she writes in a prologue, Even in my most unbearable depressed moments, I could be laughing at a friend's joke, but still feel an emptiness in my heart, and then feel an emptiness in my stomach, which would make me go out to eat some tteokboki. What was wrong with me? I wasn't deathly depressed, but I wasn't happy either, floating instead in some feeling between the two. I suffered more because I had no idea that these contradictory feelings could and did coexist in many people. So for those who aren't familiar with Korean food, tteokboki is a kind of rice cake dish. Have you tried it, Olivia? Oh, yes. Yeah, I, you love it, it? I, I like how it's very squishy and ductile. Mm. Yeah, it's very it's comforting. Comforting texture to it. Yeah, and it also happens to be Big's favorite food. Yeah, on the whole, it was a very therapeutic read. I liked how honest Big was. Um, in the book, she talks about her anxieties, her family, her obsession with her looks, how she compares herself to others who seem more successful and competent than she is. So these are all very relatable concerns, which I think um, underpins the book's success as well. Um, in a prologue, she also says, um, I wonder about others like me, who seem totally fine on the outside, but are rotting on the inside. Whether rot is this vague sense of being not fine and not devastated at the same time. The world tends to focus too much on the very bright or the very dark. Many of my own friends find my type of depression baffling. But what is an acceptable form of depression? Is depression itself something that can ever be truly understood? In the end, my hope is for people to read this book and think, I wasn't the only person who felt like this. Or, I see now that people live with this. So, her book has been a bestseller since it was first published in Korean in 2018. It's been translated into many languages, and um, an English translation by Anton Her came out this year. Um, and also, it was recommended by BTS, a South Korean boy band. So, of course, that really? must have helped. Wow. Yeah, and um, the issues it raises are so relevant. And I think, you know, in places, in countries such as South Korea and Singapore, which have both very stressful, competitive societies, um, it's, it's a topic that will resonate strongly with um, all kinds of people. Some people will find it a bit self-indulgent. Uh, she does describe her issues as pathetic. Um, but I think it's an important read uh, because it does shine a light on real issues and it shows that it's okay to seek help. One thing she said during her interview with The Straits Times stayed with me. She said that these issues seem like pathetic concerns, but revealing what I want to hide allows me to break free. I think that in an image-conscious society such as South Korea or even Singapore, being open about your inner struggles could actually be very liberating. Yeah, I think that a lot of people downplay what they're going through because they don't think that they will, it'll be socially acceptable mm. and that they're being self-indulgent. But I think maybe if to know that this book has been such a bestseller, it's resonated with so many people that, that they can draw some kind of solace from knowing that, you know, even if it doesn't solve all their problems, they are not alone in experiencing what they're experiencing. Definitely. Find us on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or via the Google Voice Assistant and Amazon Alexa-enabled devices. And now back to our podcast episode. On to our next book, Companion Piece by Ali Smith. What's it a companion to, Olivia? So before this, Ali Smith, who she's this brilliant Scottish author. I love her work. Uh, she wrote these four novels, which we can loosely dub the Brexit seasonal quartet. <laughs> so they were... Uh, <laughs> Something they get depressed over. Yeah. So she, she wanted to, you know, sort of document Brexit, but write about Brexit, but through the changing of the seasons. Uh, the first book was called Autumn. It was published in 2016, which was the year of the Brexit referendum. And it uh, was uh, shortlisted for the Booker Prize. The second winter came out in 2017. Spring came out in 2019 and summer in 2020. And so this was 
a hugely ambitious project because she was writing to the times and she was also writing against time. So you could mm. see her you know, trying to churn out the books as uh, the years went by, as uh, Brexit kept you know, changing and getting more and more tumultuous. So, of course, at the same time, she was writing about time and, you know, the ideas of time and uh, space and memory are very important in the quartet. And everything was changing so fast when she was writing. I just, you know, can't believe the kind of pressure Mm. that she must have put herself under to do this. Uh, Started out being about Brexit. And then it expanded to take in things like the refugee crisis, the climate crisis. And then by 2020, the world entered a pandemic. So that got into the book as well. Plenty of material. Yeah. And uh, so I actually do think that Summer, which came out in the summer, in the summer, post the summer of 2020, Summer was for me the first great lockdown novel. And companion piece comes, you know, this year, two years after summer. It comes as a kind of companion to the quartet. So if we're looking at the seasonal quartet as like the Marvel Cinematic Universe, then uh, the quartet is the Avengers movies, you know, culminating in Endgame. Mm. And then Companion Piece is one of those, uh, you know, Disney Plus limited series about a minor character who wasn't didn't get a lot of play in, in Infinity Wars, but uh, it's actually got quite an interesting backstory. So in a way, it's fitting for me to end uh, my podcast run with this because Autumn was one of the very first books that I reviewed after I became ST Book Reporter in 2016. And then I've reviewed every subsequent book in the quartet. And, you know, I've watched the quartet uh, evolve over the years. And now we are in what I hope is the ebbing of the pandemic. And here we are talking about companion piece. So it's a fitting coda to the quartet. Yes, yes, and to my to my book's career, uh, the quartet has this beautiful eclectic collage style. So it's uh, there are these set themes. So every book will be themed around one season, like uh, spring, summer, autumn, blah blah blah. It's also got a visual artist that's themed around and a Shakespeare play, but. Working around these uh, set pieces, uh, Smith, she just ranges so far and wide across, you know, popular culture, history, myth, nature, language, literature, and uh, etymology. She loves, she loves words. She's the word Smith. <laughs> yeah. So companion piece is much tighter and less sprawling. Uh, I think there are at most two plot lines in it, one major plot line and one minor plot line. But it carries on this collage style narrative and that wordplay that Smith loves so much. So it begins with this middle-aged artist called Sandy and her father is gravely ill in hospital. And then out of the blue, while she's waiting for him to recover, she's very uh, anxious about him. She gets this call from her old classmate, Martina Inglis, who she hasn't spoken to in about three decades. And she doesn't even, she's forgotten that Martina exists. And then Martina just randomly calls her out of nowhere and she starts telling her about how she... Uh, Martina is a works as an assistant to a museum curator. So she was tasked to transport this valuable 16th century artifact called the Boothby Lock. It's a metal lock that was uh, wrought to look like it's grown over with ivy leaves. It's very intricate and beautiful. Uh, because Martina has a dual passport, and uh, in the Brexit era, this makes border control agents very suspicious, uh, then they sort of detain her for seven and a half hours. And then while she's in detention, she hears or she thinks she hears a voice say to her uh, this very strange line. The voice speaks and it says, curlew or curfew, you choose. Mm. So curlew, uh, look this up, is a kind of wading bird with a very long, thin beak. 
And uh, Dylan Thomas, he he liked to write about them a lot. He he would say things like, uh, now curl you, cry me down to kiss the mouse of their dust, which is lovely. So Martina's calling Sandy, who she's not even remotely close to or has spoken to in ages. And this is only because she remembers that Sandy was really good at literary criticism in school. And she would do like uh, <laughs> unseen unseen papers really well. And uh, she wants her to help her analyze this phrase. And I'm going to read part of the scene where she does this. Curly or curfew? You choose, she said. Well, I said, that's the key. There's a choice. And it's something to do with time versus bird. I mean, between the notion or actuality of time and the notion or actuality of a bird. A curlew is a bird, and a curfew is a time of day after which people officially aren't, by authority, permitted to be out and about. By law, they're supposed to be home. Yeah, but that's obvious. I know all that, she said. So the choice, I said. If there's such a thing as a real choice between the concepts evoked by two random words whose spelling suggests they've been yoked together, like, or maybe even for, a kind of joke, maybe simply because they're almost the same word, save for a single consonant change that minimally but effortlessly changes the meaning of everything. Consonant change, she said. Oh, oh yes. See, I never even thought of that. The choice, I said, is something to do with difference and sameness, and it's something to do with the dissonance between the word's meanings. I could hear her writing things down at the other end of the phone. And any similarity you can find between the things the words stand for. For instance, say, birds having wings and time being supposed to fly. Yes, she said, that's brilliant. You're such a clever clogs. And if we think for a minute, I said, about the short span but the apparent freedom in the life of a bird, juxtaposed with the notion that what we do with our allotted time can be, or arguably always is, dictated or controlled one way or another, not by nature alone, but by outside forces like economics, history, social constraint, social convention, personal psychology, and political and cultural zeitgeist. And if we think about the profit choice, curlew or curfew, between nature and an authoritarian shaping of time, which is a human invention, or between the environment and our control of a harmful and expedient use of the environment, at the other end of the phone, she started laughing. Expedient. Juxtapose. Zeitgeist. Difference. Dissonance. Consonant change, she said. I said, tell you what hasn't changed, Sand, she said. You. You haven't changed a bit. I felt myself blush with no idea why I'd be blushing. Oh, I don't know, I said. Definitely shifted a consonant or two of my own over the years, here or there. Still the same old shifting sand, she said. Thrilling stuff. I can see why this would be frustrating for people who aren't as enamored with words as we are. <laughs> Very frustrating yeah, to read. so people would be like, why is she going on about all this stuff? And uh, so it's implied that Martina, once upon a time, used to be the kind of person who would have been, why is she going on about all this stuff? And nevertheless, she's been so changed by this experience in the, the detention room that she sort of uh, has this break in her life where she just... Not, not to say she goes crazy, but she starts living life in a different way. And then her family get really concerned. She's these twin children and they're very woke and uh, they're millennials. And they think that Sandy has seduced their mother. So they become entangled in Sandy's life. They keep showing up on her doorstep and asking her about things. And then they start living in a house. And she's very concerned about this because uh, she wants to isolate because uh, she wants to protect her father because he's vulnerable to COVID. And then among all this, there is also this other story of this skilled young female blacksmith who, it is implied, made the Boothby lock somewhere in the 16th century. And uh, then she's assaulted and she's displaced from her forge and she's left for dead. And then she meets this bird and she begins wandering. 
So in an Ali Smith novel, there is always art somewhere. And here the art that she's interested in is smithing. Uh, the, you know, the craft, the intricacy of it, the forging in fire or something that will last through time. And also how that relates to the way she herself creates her work, which is a very artisanal process. Uh, and because she loves wordplay, it will not have escaped her notice that she herself is a smith. What I love about the seasonal quartet and companion piece is how each book begins with the characters in the, this kind of funk, uh, this existential ennui, like you say, because of the time that they're living in, whether it's because of Brexit or the climate crisis or the pandemic lockdown or any number of wars and divisions and conflicts that we're going through. And in the process of the book, they just kind of slowly work their ways towards a place of hope. And Smith never, ever downplays how terrible it is to be living in the kind of times that we're living in. You know, she's not, uh, she doesn't sugarcoat it. You can often tell that she's very angry about what's happening in the world. I think that comes out most strongly in her third, the third book in the quartet, which is Spring. And it's about the refugee crisis. But uh, for the most part, she's not really heavy handed or didactic in her anger. She will let the reader work it out with the characters and the collage of references that she's assembled and the journey that the narrative goes on. It's not like they're plots in these books. They're more like collage pieces and you just sort of move between the connections between all the pieces. And I feel that her books model a way to process crisis with art. You know, and it doesn't, this art does not solve crisis. It can't do that for us, but it does help us process what is happening to us. And there's this part from Summer, which is a 2020 novel that was published fresh out of lockdown that I always try to bear in mind when I'm writing about things. And it goes something like, um, I really believed I could hold all the knowledge in me, all the narratives, all the poems, all the art, all the learning, and that this gathering and holding of all of these things meant I now owned these things and that to do this was the reason for living. These days, what do I know? close to nothing. But one thing I do know now is that I don't hold any of those things I thought I owned. Instead, all those things hold me. They hold us all under the sky. And I think that that is what art should do for us and the way that we should see art. It should hold us all together under the sky. We don't own it. You know, it holds us. And when we're in pieces, it should make of us companions to each other. Speaking of companions, I'll be sad to see my podcast companion leave. Well, I'm very sad to leave you. (laughs) Could you tell us more about the PhD that you're going to be doing? Oh, gosh, I don't know if I can talk about my PhD on a pod in in a nutshell. But um, so my PhD is hopefully about urban space in fiction, uh, the way that we write about cities, the way that we live in cities. It begins with Invisible Cities by Italo Calvino. And then I'm going on to look at how that and uh, that and other novels represent interstitial space and, you know, how it relates to the way that we live and work and connect with each other in cities. Anyway, it's not strictly the end because Olivia will be writing book reviews for us on an ad hoc basis. You can expect to see yes, more of her writing in print. We'll not stop doing that. So all the very best to you, Olivia. I hope your PhD goes well. Thank you. To all the people out there who are still listening, we'd like to say a big thank you. Bookmark This will be on the hiatus after this episode and more plans will be announced in due course. Anyway, that's all we have for you this episode. Once again, thank you for listening to us. I'm, for the last time, Olivia Ho. And I'm To Wen Lee. And you have been listening to our Bookmark This podcast. That was a podcast by The Straits Times. 
Send your feedback to podcast at sph.com.sg. Find us on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or via the Google Voice Assistant and Amazon Alexa-enabled devices. For more podcasts by The Straits Times, The Business Times, and Money FM 89.3, you can also download the audio by SPH app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O.